Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. My name is Alan, with me as always is Saul. Hello. Joining us this week is our regular guest, Gareth. Hello. I thought I thought you were going to position this as one of our exciting 2021 guests. We've had, you know... <laughs> our least exciting guest of the year so far. I think I can be, back. I can be a regular guest and exciting. Uh, Saul... Um, I would like you to open your back door. I have a pilot to sneak in. Uh, this, oh. <laughs> this episode <laughs> is a sneaky uh, promo for a, a new podcast that I've been working on with Gareth um, called the British Sitcom History Podcast. And that is why we are looking at a film spin-off of a sitcom today. Because our new podcast, British Sitcom History Podcast, go and search for it, that... that <laughs> That came out a few weeks ago, and our very first episode was on Steptoe and Son. And so we thought today we could do uh, one of the film spin-offs. And you, Sol, have got yeah. a bit of a thing for sitcom spin-off films. So you were all up for it, weren't you? Yeah, I, I, I really do, actually. I, I've, I mean, I guess I like sitcoms and I like films. You so just like I'm to see really... your favourite stars of the small screen on holiday. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love seeing things awkwardly trying to replicate magic in a different medium and completely falling flat on their ass. <laughs> yeah, it never works. Never yeah. works. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, a, a few years back I did, you know, every now and then I'll kind of go, I'm going to watch all of these films in this category and, you know, yeah. Nicolas Cage films or, or <laughs> Best Picture winners at the Oscars or what have you. And Just so you can make another list. Yeah, and it, it was something like five, six years ago, but I thought, I'm going to watch every film. I'm going to watch every first episode just to kind of get myself set up on the show, and then the film based on every British sitcom I can possibly find. And, you know, I even I even watched the other day the Bad Education movie. That's how dedicated <laughs> to this I am. <laughs> well, yeah, there was a, a flurry of theatrically released films based on sitcoms in sort of the 70s, really. That was its peak. And it was all tied in with the British film industry and, and certain tax breaks and, and that sort of thing. You know, the mm. circumstances were just right. Whereas from the 80s onwards, they tended to, particularly the BBC, rather than do a theatrically released film, they'd just do an hour and a half long feature length episode. And sometimes mm. it would be filmed differently, as in it wouldn't be in a kind of three camera in front of an audience. They would go and do it like a film. So there's an Only Fools and Horses special that there's mm. no laugh track on and it's uh, really weird. Oh, that's really common. But yeah, they're they're like Christmas specials usually, aren't they? Like yeah, TV well, thing. yeah, but they would they would go out at Christmas, but not necessarily have anything to do with Christmas yeah. in that sense. But that was the f financially speaking, it was no longer viable to put them in theaters. It was easier just to mm. do a kind of thing. And then it, that has sort of changed, like you said. You've got the um, the teacher thing, and then the in between. Oh yeah, that, well, the, yeah, the in betweeners movie kicked off a kind of new wave of oh yeah, we can make really successful low-budget films based on British sitcoms, because that yeah. film made a crazy amount of money, and off the back of that we got Keith Lemon the film, that David <laughs> Brent movie, uh, In Between There's Two, Bad Education, there was a real wave of them, I think it's died down again now, but it was a nice little patch yeah, for me. Because, um, you know, when, when a film is based on a sitcom and it works, I, I really love it. You know, I do have a list here as well, where I've kept a ranking of everything that I watched for that, and I mean, it's only really the top five that are 
particularly <laughs> worthwhile films in my opinion. Go on then, but give I us your top five. Well, when, five. Can I just say that when Sol said he'd got a ranking there, what I did was, in the spirit of British sitcom, I looked at my camera just like Tim from The Office. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't really work on a podcast. The bottom, number 41 on here, the worst one, which has a 0.5 out of 10, is Keith Lemon, the film. That's fair. Uh, I'm saying it's but, yeah, 0.5 in there. But I'll rattle off. The top five are all things I'd seen anyway before doing this, or for other reasons, but it's in the loop based on the thick of it, which okay, Oscar yeah, nominated. Yeah. I'm sure you can appreciate it very good. The League of Gentlemen's Apocalypse, which yeah, I'm I, a I really huge that. fan of, actually, even though it, it, yeah. Yeah, it, it didn't go down that well, but I thought it was mm. excellent. Uh, Bruno, arguably not based on a sitcom, but it's a British at comedy. All. That's not based on a sitcom. Not accepting that one at all. That. You can take that one off your list. Well, <laughs> I've called it Britcom movies ranked, and that stands for British comedies. But that means sitcom. the top two are Borat and Borat Two, then. Isn't it? So <laughs> no, it doesn't. It means the top two are Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. Okay, fair enough. And then enough. Borat. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So none of those are really classics of the 70s uh, no. boom. Do you want me to find uh, my favourite classic of the 70s boom? Uh, <laughs> if I go down, I've got the Muppet movie on here, because that is technically a British no, sitcom. that one, you can really... take that one off, no, that's nonsense. That's not, that is technically not a British sitcom, Alan. It's a British show, and it's it was that, a situation comedy. You can say no, technically it's all it's your life is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a British, you know, production. American uh, people finding a loophole to make something in the UK, but Porridge <laughs> is my top-rated one on here. Yeah, that yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's number that's eleven on this list. Generally speaking, these film adaptations were just kind of some of the episodes slapped together, reused, yeah, remade. Some of the actors recast. Some of the actors kept. Yeah, well, we did. We've done Rising Damp on us on our yes, uh, yes, podcast, the British one. Sitcom History Podcast. <laughs> which so Rising Damp will be coming out quite s- in a couple of weeks after this comes out, I think. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we talked about the film version slightly. We don't we we deal with the show really, mm. but uh, yeah, the film version of that was completely reused material. It was just sort of like three episodes stuck together, but reshot. And um, Richard Beckinsale was dead, so they just put another actor in. It was all kind of quite cheap and nasty. I mean, when you're making a decision, those production decisions, shall we, you know, which which sitcom shall we adapt? Which which movie shall we make this year? When 50% of your cast is dead, surely, that, <laughs> how is that getting to the top of the list? Well, they carried on the show after, like, he'd, he'd left the show before he died anyway. Like, he left the show and they carried on and it was fine. So they were obviously happy with that. Can I ask you guys, what's what's the draw to British sitcoms then? I think there's a real sense of nostalgia for me. You know, I'm I'm 45, so going back into the late 70s, early 80s onwards, there, you know, that it's like a, a part of my childhood. But even before that, um, you know, Steptoe and Sons a bit before my time, really. But there's a nostalgia for a older Britain, and some of the, you know, a lot of the jokes in Steptoe and Son are predicated on them being these sort of poverty-stricken rag and bone men. You know, my, my dad and he tells stories from his childhood that mm. are a million miles away from those. So there's there's this, this kind of relatability there. Yeah, I think for me it was just a real window into history. Like, you know, it's like, oh, that's what life was... Because you get all these little details from watching the likes of Steptoe and Son that I would just never pick up on in I think it's it's an interesting little time capsule. uh, In this week's episode of the British Sitcom History Podcast, we've been talking about bread. And that's quite an an interesting um, snapshot of 1980s Thatcher's Liverpool Mm. and how people interacted with that world. 
And so, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, the jokes and the characters, but, but how does it actually how, how does it actually sit within the world of its, own, of its time? There's a lot of that in the Steptoe and Son film that we're yeah. talking about this week. You know, the, the scene that, I, that really stayed with me, because I'd watched it before, obviously I rewatched it again for this recording. But the scene that really stayed with me is quite near the start when Son, whatever his name is, Harry Corbett, what's his name, the character? Harold. Harold. When Harold's having a bath, and he's in a little bath in his living room, but it's on wheels, and he's Mm. just sat in front of the TV. You know, it's obviously back in the day where you had to boil the water in the kettle, and then fill the bathtub up that way, and then he empties it out outside. And he he wants to change the TV channel, so he has to wheel himself over to the (laughs) TV. They didn't have remote controls. (laughs) But I'd love that now. I'd love having a bath in front of the TV, and wheeling myself (laughs) around the room, with a little mini bar on the shelf. Well, the the interesting thing about that, Saul, which we actually discuss in our episode on Steptoe and Son, is that when this was made, and this film was made in 72, that was really out of date. Like, that is showing how Mm. poor... I did wonder that, yeah. These guys live, like their lifestyle is. You know, everyone had indoor plumbing by then. But we as viewers, like 40 years later, like certainly for me, I was like, yeah, people in the 70s still didn't have proper Mm. bathrooms. Yeah, probably that's Mm. true. Yeah. What about then, because I imagine this was very much of the time, the fact that the film has a, a sequence where they go to like, is that a working man's club, whatever it is? Yeah. But yeah. there's a whole, there's a group of like a hundred men sat around in a room and they've gone to watch a stripper and that's the night's entertainment. And presumably that was something that happened in the, the 70s. You just go... I think that happened when I was a teenager, to be honest. But it's, but it's not. <laughs> it's not years a, ago. It's not a strip club. It's just they've gone to. Like, no, no, it's the, the working men's club. So a stripper on as the night. My father-in-law still goes to the working men's club every Friday night up in, uh, in Middlesbrough, where he lives. And yes, mm. I don't think they have strippers on there anymore. But they have a turn on. They have a they have a singer, and they might have a comic on from time to time, and they do a bingo, and they have a meat draw. That's that's survived. That that still happens. And and yet yeah, you would have. An evening, you got a, you got the comic. You got Mike Reed doing the comparing. He comes out, does a couple of mm-hmm. saucy gags. Oh, here's a turn. Stripper, drag act, singer. Yeah. Comic finishes with a song. I mean, that's get that's, drunk, go home. What is that if not Saturday night television these days? <laughs> you know, you just basically described Saturday night on BBC. Well, this is the problem. I haven't watched TV for 20 years, so I've no idea <laughs> what people do anymore. But I can tell you what they did in the 70s. <laughs> can you tell me a bit about the context of how this got made and the history of, of that before we go into the plot itself? Well, Steptoe and Son started in 63, 62, 63. I think the original pilot was 62. And then maybe the series started the next year. Anyway, they did four series. And then there was this big gap where they kind of stopped doing it. There was a four-year gap, I think it was. Mm, well, I, I did see that, you know, typically I think we think of a movie being like the finale of a sitcom or or like a bonus thing you do after the finale. Yeah. But I did see that they made a series after... There were two Steptoe and Son movies and there was a series the year following the second movie that they did. So they obviously didn't end the show well there was this big gap yeah and then they kind of went off and did other things nothing much came of it so they went oh well we better go back to what we know so in 1970 they started again and they did another four series so it ran to 1974 but yeah the films came out in 72 and 73 so it was just an aside and generally speaking the films are treated as non-canon like a good example of this is on the buses so Mm. in on the buses they did the films while the series was still on but they're totally different narratives. So in the, in the film, in the first film, 
Olive and Arthur have a baby. So then in the mm. second film, it's a toddler and, and so on. But in the series, they never have a child. So with the with the Steptoe film here, we, we get ahead of ourselves, but, you know, the, the, Harold gets married and divorced. That's the that's the setup for this film. So is that ever mentioned mm. in any of the shows in the series? Or is it just, we just no. never happened? It doesn't, but I think you could easily slip it into canon, as in this happened, and they just never mentioned it yeah. again. Like it, yeah. they don't change anything that we've already established, particularly. Do you know why they took that approach? I mean, I'm guessing it's so you can still enjoy one if you haven't seen the other. But it just seems baffling to me to take that approach. So, you know, I, I, the only modern film I can think that's done it is in the Loop, which is this weird kind of right. This yeah. character's from the thick of it, as you know, portrayed then, but it's obviously there's actors playing new characters, and it's. Perhaps can I can I make a suggestion? Is it because the the habit with sitcoms back in those days was that it was episodic and everything would return to at the end of the episode, everything returned mm. to the start of the episode. So you couldn't develop the characters in that way. And so it was impossible for one of them to get married because you couldn't wrap it all up and, and married and divorce in half an hour. So they thought, right, well, we've got 90 minutes to play with. Yeah. Let's let's do a bigger arc. Is that, yeah. is that, is that, yeah. Do you think that's why they tackle that bigger? Probably, although as we'll see as we get into this film, it's not a, a smooth 90 minute arc. It, it just feels isn't. like three episodes jammed it's, it's together. Very, very, well, we'll get into it, but it's very clearly three half hour episodes just yeah. stapled together, yeah. Yeah, so one is, oh, I've met a woman, I want to get married. The second one is, we're on a honeymoon and the dad's being a pain. And the third one is, oh, we've got a baby, two men and a baby, what are we going to do? Like, that's it, isn't it? It's three separate things smashed together. I called them, <laughs> are you, ready, you ready for this? I called them Step Two and Stripper, Step Two in Spain. Steptoe and son and son. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think I wrote down Steptoe and son and son somewhere as well. <laughs> yeah, <it makes laughs> Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> but you, you're forgetting that they, to make it feel like a film, they start at the end and then the whole thing is a flashback. So it feels really neatly written, doesn't it? <laughs> that is an odd uh, yeah, story. I don't know why they did that, because it did kind of take all the drama out of it. Like, you knew the, the film opens with them it's leaving very the divorce weird, yeah. court. And then, yeah, we get a flashback of this whole marriage. But you could have left that open-ended. It could, that could have been a nice surprise ending. But I, I had the thought, and, and I remember having this exact same thought, and the same thing happened to me when I first watched it. Oh, this must be picking up a plot from the last episode of the show, and obviously mm-hmm. I haven't seen that. I, I thought, like, oh, we must get divorced at the end of the series, and that's the finale, and then this is going to deal with that. But, you know, very quickly, it's a flashback showing, oh, no, here's how he met the woman and everything. And it is, it is just very, very odd. And, and I did wonder, like, why is this the film? Because nothing about this strikes me as a, a cinematic plot that makes use of the medium in any sense that you can do on no. TV. But then, as you say, I suppose you, yeah, you're right. You couldn't do something as big as someone getting married and having a kid within the span of a half hour, effectively, where it returns to a status quo. That's why the cliche of sitcom films is they go on holidays. Because, like, mm. yeah, you've got to get them out into a bigger world. You've got to kind of take them out of our usual set. We're not shooting on the set. You know, the BBC owns the set and they won't let us use it because it's a different company making it. <laughs> so, so we have to go somewhere else. Uh, and like even in this, in Steptoe and Son, like the, the yard they're using for the exterior shots are, are different to the ones they use. And, and the house is different, you know. It, like we think of it, we're thinking of it as like, oh, a film, that's an opportunity to do something slightly different, something bigger and achieve something. Whereas it was more just like, look, we'll give you some money if you do a film. Like, uh, yeah, okay. And they know we can like we can make this for two hundred grand or whatever, and make a million 
It's like when a publishing house approaches the creators of a show and says, can we put all the scripts out as a book? <laughs> yeah. And, and you don't yeah. have to do any more work. It's pretty much all done. <laughs> Maybe write a foreword and you'll get a bit of money from it. I guess it's that approach of like, how can we milk this for yeah. you know? In it's a, not. In a it's new not. Medium. It's not the the writers thinking that they want to spread their wings and do something new mm. with the characters. Mm. It's just a, <laughs> it's just a different format. This was this was written by Golden Simpson though. The films were written by Golden Simpson, and it is largely new material. Uh, mm. So you know they did at least uh, write some new stuff. There is a couple of things like um, Albert. Steptoe in the having a bath in the sink, you know they'd done that in the uh, in the show. I think washing his knackers with the washing up brush. Yeah, yeah. It's it's another really peculiar thing, actually. If it isn't based directly on an episode, they will take little greatest hits sequences yeah, just from it, and then that. That follows through all the way to like the bloody Mr. Bean movie did that about you know <laughs> a good four or five of the set pieces in the Mr. Bean movie are just lifted directly. From but I think the there's two reasons so. for that, Salt. I think I think number one, you've got the fans who want to see those greatest hits, but also they are thinking they might find a new audience here, mm. and so they want to use their best material. And they've got a lot. Generally speaking, by the time they get to a movie, they, they've got a back catalogue. They've got a lot of writing mm. done, so there'll be some good stuff in there. The whole laugh track thing, I've I've always wondered if there are any instances of films out there that have a laugh track and it's not like a crazy David Lynch trying to freak <laughs> people out sort of thing. Mm. I mean, obviously the laugh track is because sitcoms, or this is my interpretation of it anyway, sitcoms stem from live theatre. You would do these tightly written comedy yeah. shows to a live audience. So the idea is to replicate that energy and make mm-hmm. things funny by hearing other people laughing around you. Mm-hmm. And and the idea is when you then make a film of it, you're going to see it in the cinema with people all around you. So there's no need to have a laugh track anymore because you will ha- you'll have that live laughter in the cinema. It just saps the pacing and the energy. Yeah, it's yeah, weird. it does completely. I, I, And I think that is ultimately the major failing of films based on sitcoms and why they just don't work, they don't play, because they don't have the same rhythm. energy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they don't have the same energy and it doesn't feel like live performance. And certainly in British sitcom, that was, yeah, it was standard. You, do, you get an audience in, you perform, you do the whole thing basically as a play. And they all laugh, you record them laughing, and you put and you use it. And not much fake laughter at all. America has much more of a culture of just adding fake laughs on, and it's usually pretty obvious. But it's also yeah. usually because they're not funny. Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, that that's perhaps part of, just going back very quickly to what I was saying about being drawn to British sitcoms, I think part of it is that, for the most part, and obviously there's a lot of exceptions, for the most part I think British TV is a bit shit compared to American TV. And I think the one area that that isn't true, and we excel, and often, certainly until recently, were much better than America, is sitcoms. I, I think, yeah. you know, you compare British sitcoms from the 70s and the 80s to what America was putting out back then, and for the most part, I think the British stuff's a hell of a lot better. I do think you have to be cautious there, Sol, in that there was a lot of shit as well. You know, what, what you remember oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. is the good stuff. That's what's kind yeah, of been yeah, yeah. handed down. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking about comparing the gems from both mm sides of the the you know i can suggest a reason for this and it's a, it's just a slightly different culture in terms of how things were made british sitcoms you would have a writer usually two writers they do six episodes a year and they concentrate on that and they do that and that's it whereas in american sitcoms and i don't know exactly why this is 
but they were like, oh, we've got this idea for a show. Great. Uh, we'll take 48 of them. Thanks. Uh, here's 20 writers to help you write that. And so you're just churning it out. All you're doing is filling 24 minutes and rather than actually trying to produce something of artistic integrity. This is where the season series split comes from, I believe. You know, Americans listening to this might not be aware, but in the UK we call a, a season a series, as in not the show as a whole, but the order of, you know, usually six in the UK or 22 in America episodes. But in America it's because, until recently, this has changed and they've become a lot more British in their sensibilities recently. But certainly on network American TV, it was like, we need to fill the fall schedule, the winter schedule. Yeah, we need to, yeah. So we need to f- twenty-two episodes to fill this patch of the year, this yeah. slot for however long. And um, I think the basic order, the the lowest order you tend to get on network TV is thirteen episodes, which is because it's more or less half a year. And then they will expand. Yeah, sorry, more or less a quarter of a year. But they will expand that out to 20, 22, 25, which is much. That's half a year when you factor mm-hmm. in the weeks they're going to have to skip an episode for a sports game or whatever. Sports game. Whereas in the UK, it's much more of. Right, this is a good show. We like what you're doing. We'd like to order six more of these from you so that it's it's not really look we'll figure out when they're gonna wear later. When we've got a gap. And we'll have gaps because everything only lasts yeah. six weeks. Exactly. It's not commissioned <laughs> to fill time in the same way. And and I don't know if that's because we uh, I don't know, America doesn't have a, a public broadcaster in the same way that we have the BBC. You know, the BBC is unique uh, in in terms of what it was and and what it set out and you know i'm talking about 60 years well more than that really 80 years ago but things have changed dramatically but having a broadcaster who basically don't have to worry about getting advertisements and sponsors and stuff it's just like hey we just put out whatever we want do we like this did one of our mates from school write this that's okay (laughs) yeah we'll do that Mm. like so it was it, it does have a different kind of vibe it had a different mentality things had longer to land. I feel like, you know, I feel like the BBC made remarkable comedy for a while, and it was a great source of comedy up until about 2010. And I just, you know, maybe it's because I don't watch TV in the same way that I used to now, and I miss stuff, but I feel like the BBC's comedy output is pathetic now, frankly. I think there was a fragmentation when they launched the new channels. And Mm. again, if you go back to the 80s and look at the, the, the sitcom output of the BBC, there were some classics. But there was a lot of crap then as well. And now you've got you've got the broad comedies and, you know, we sort of we can mock Mrs. Brown's boys and, you know, I, I don't like it, but it's very popular. So there are things, those broad comedies that are very popular. But then, you know, the BBC made The Office. You know, the BBC... The yeah, BBC but that was 20 years producing... ago. It was a long time ago, that's fair. But the BBC <laughs> are what... still producing those smaller, the smaller comedies. The whole landscape has changed, you know. In the 70s, mm. you know, you're at home of an evening. Do you watch BBC or do you watch ITV? And that's mm. it. And that's how a good sitcom could get 23 million viewers in a in yeah. a country that has a population of 52 million. So it's just it's just not the same anymore. The BBC yeah. cannot take the same kind of risks. They have to just play everything much safer. I also think there's an element of and and I'm not really disagreeing with you Assault. I'm not saying that you are wrong. What I'm saying is you have got older and and you know <laughs> your your perception of what is cutting edge changes as you get older. You know, because I think I think the world went to shit in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> but I still love... I, I feel like America's producing a hell of a lot of excellent comedy still. 
Um, oh, Fleabag. There you go. I'll give you Fleabag. That's one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but there you go. Fleabag came out and everyone went crazy for it. I would argue far more than its quality deserves. I think it's an excellent show, but I don't think it's, you know, this revolution But it's, it's again, it's, it's auto-driven. It's just written by one person and it's got a six-episode arc. It's got that progress through the through the series. You know, you it's Plus not episodic you, in the same you, way. You say fl- everyone went mental over Fleabag. How many people watched it? What's its viewing figures? Because it ain't 20 million, I'll tell you that. What you mean is people in The Guardian on Twitter went mad about it. Well, my, I guess what I mean is it, kind of broke America and won the Emmys. <laughs> yeah. Like, I agree with you on Fleabag. It was, I think it was great, and it was hugely successful, and it's made a lot of money, and I bet my mum has never heard of it. Whereas <laughs> in, the, in 1987, when Bread was on BBC on a Thursday night, <laughs> 20 million people watched it, and everybody knew all the catchphrases, and you could say those uh, at work or at school. She will, and, she yeah, will have, though, because she'll have seen her on Graham Norton. So she'll know. She'll know about. Well, I was going to say, like you know, you you say that, but my mum watched and loved Fleabag. My girlfriend yeah. watched and loved Fleabag, and they're both kind of pretty good barometers for you know areas of society. I don't really <laughs> swim in. And I do. I think the point stands uh, that, that Alan was making about no, just just volume of people watching these things. Yeah. When Step Two and Son was on the television, more than fifty percent of the humans in this country were watching it live at the time. And, you know, there's just nothing to compare to that now. Yeah. But you know, having said that, um, like sitcoms are relatively cheap to produce compared yeah. to say like a decadent period drama or something. Mm. So you can churn them out. And like, um, interestingly, we talk about the BBC a lot there. ITV kind of gave up on sitcoms to a large yeah. extent for like the eight after Rising Damp that was a last big Well success. they gave up on comedy full stop the the yeah. ITV again you know I've I've had a very minimal amount of experience within the professional side of ITV's comedy world and the ITV have a comedy department and they make a big song and dance out of it and I I don't wish to be completely dismissive but from it's what just I can gather their comedy no well I guess so I guess it is now but from what I can gather, their comedy department is basically you've been framed. Um, <laughs> and I guess Keith Lemon, if that's not an external oh uh, thing that they buy in. It's baffling. And I, I think maybe they've made some attempt to change perceptions by buying the rights to Family Guy and some stuff like that in the last decade or so. But I mean, I don't, I don't think of ITV as a channel that produces scripted content full stop. I only think of ITV churning out stuff to numb people who are not remotely discerning about what they watch. You just want to sit down with noise coming out of a light box while they eat their dinner. I stopped watching ITV when I lost interest in football about five years ago. I don't think I've watched <laughs> ITV since. Yeah, I see. I don't know really why that is, but I think The New Statesman was on ITV, but again, yeah. it wasn't exactly a huge hit, but it was a bit of a cult success. You know, they Frank Skinner tried to make a couple of sitcoms on ITV and like went nowhere. Oh, the legendary <laughs> Shane. Now Shane's Shane's famous because the first series he was commissioned to make two series, and the first series got such bad ratings that they they filmed and produced the second series, but it never went out. It never <laughs> got shown. <laughs> There's a few of those, actually. I mean, are you guys going to cover the likes of Heil Honey, I'm Home on your podcast? Because that is a fascinating Well, um, we will, we're trying to have a bit of a range of the classics and a few more, not necessarily obscure, but, you know, lesser known ones. But also on 
on our YouTube channel that is uh, tied in, uh, British Sitcom History, if you go and search for that on YouTube, I'm, I'm doing a series... Is that, is that like British Sitcom History podcast, but without the podcast? Yes, that's correct. Yes. British Sitcom History. The right, podcast okay, is on. hosted on the YouTube channel as well, if you want to watch that. But uh, I'm doing a series called Forgotten Sitcoms, which is, that's my way of having a bit of a closer look at some more obscure kind of forgotten things. Uh, so um, yeah, check that out. I can listen. I can say this because I've had nothing to do with those forgotten sitcoms. The videos he's producing are really good. They're really interesting. <laughs> nice. No, they are also nice little time capsules. Uh, I'd recommend them. Hello, Alan here. I'm just jumping into the episode because I want to do something a little bit unusual. I want to dedicate this episode to a couple of listeners who have helped us out in the past. First of all, Tom O'Fallows. You may recognise the name because he does music for us sometimes. He does our James Bond themes. And he did all the music for this new podcast that I'm pushing right now called the British Sitcom History Podcast. He did the theme music. He's done all our little interstitial music and everything. It was really great. It was great working with him. So I want to say thank you, Tomo. And also, we just want to say happy birthday to Tom Patton, a very long-time faithful listener who helps us out. Well done, mate. You made it to 30, the big 3-0. It's all downhill from here. If you haven't achieved it yet, it's never going to happen. Good luck with that. Thanks, Tomo. Thanks, Tom. And now let's get back to the show. Uh, yeah, let's let's dive into the the film itself then. Yeah. So uh, we yeah we we've we've had our little preamble where we we see that he's been divorced. We we flash back. Harold is going to the local club for a night out. Albert insists on going with him because there's crumpet there. Oh, first of all, we see them getting ready. We see, uh, and we get a, a nice shot of Wilfred Bramble, who is just such a scrawny little old man, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, it's just perfect casting because he is, he is just... a phenomenally ugly man. <laughs> and he's yeah. just, we see him getting out of the bath, and he's just like a wizened little old man with no yeah. fat on him whatsoever. How old was he? Out of interest. Not By this point, think. he was sixty. I was going to say, because it it did reek of that thing where they kind of make someone look older than they are, which I guess he kind of is. He's kind of playing it older than 60, I think. He was 50 when the show started, and I think the character's supposed to be like 64, something like that. Yeah. This is 10 years later, so he's kind of aged up into it a little bit. But but also, yeah, you know, he's got the false teeth in to make him look kind of like more kind of old and wizened and like horrible teeth and all that sort of thing and and he he was used to playing older just because i guess he looks older than he was but yes we we go to the the working men's club and i and i i just thought like this this night as we discussed earlier you know comics uh stripper drag act with a load of like football players and drunk men it's possibly the worst case scenario for me like the worst possible situation (laughs) to be in I just can't imagine like going to a pub to me is like a horrible idea. So well, going, you think it's bad for you? Imagine being the only woman in there and being naked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I found this very odd because this film is rated PG, and yet there is, is like a full bit of nudity. Oh, you there do is see a little bit of nudity in there. I was quite surprised. That a little bit of boob, a little bit of bum. Because I thought, well, this is this is why it's a movie and not a TV show. You know, you've got a little bit of uh, a risqueness. And beyond that, there's a lot of vulgar language and stuff it's quite hardcore for a pg film 
Um, and I, I guess that's to do with it was rated A back in the day. Which I, I guess times was, have changed. It's maybe you know, a PG had, now. Yeah, I guess they had like adult and suitable for all. I think I remember reading something saying that they cut a bit of boob out of the theatrical release, but it's in the DVD version. So it might have been slightly uh, more edited. But yeah, that that's a classic. In, in the On the Buses film, obviously in On the Buses, you've got, Stan never gets his end away, but Jack, his mate, has always like got some housewife on the go, even yeah. though he's horrifically ugly. A bit of nooky. Yeah. And in in, in the and so obviously you never see anything in the show, but in the film, like the first scene is him running out of a bedroom and then a woman with just tits out completely. And he's like, Yes, we can finally show some tits. Get them out. Come on. <laughs> so but does that lose us something, that. doesn't it? The whole thing, it's the whole mm. charm of on the buses. It's like that 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 seaside postcard type thing, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's risque, but it's not rude in that same way. It feels like they've thrown the Throwing the the bathwater, the baby out with the bathwater there. I guess by modern standards, it's still pretty tame stuff, really. But um... <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I'm offended by it, but it just it just seems that you know, if the idea is what are, what's the point of making a film? What are we doing different? We're going to show some tits. Well, great. Is that enough? Is that enough of a justification to? to yeah, make it? I I remember. <laughs> You know, I I um I remember going to see the Fast Show live when I was younger and being surprised at the language because they were just like oh, on the TV show they don't really swear. It's you know yeah. I think they're generally rated twelve on DVD and what have you. But the live show they were just like oh fuck this you fucking cunt that fucking what bunch of fucking twats fuck fuck shit. And I was just <laughs> like oh they've kind of it's kind of taking you know the the lack of restraint is kind of subtracting from what yeah, they're doing yeah, here. Yeah rather than adding to it. it you know unless you're south park and it that's the point of what you're doing it's mm. just kind of i don't know it's not as good can i can i wrestle us back to the the plot of this yes. film because after yes. we've seen the, the the stripper harold meets her outside in the bar what's with the, the wig the burgeoning romance well well here's my question which <laughs> which i kept coming back to throughout this film is she a goodie or a baddie <laughs> like I couldn't tell whether she was exploiting him or whether it was mm. just you know she genuinely did love him or whether it was just you know love at first sight it, it just it was it never this really made itself I, clear to me I struggled with the film in general on this sort of front but you know I I don't know if I'm supposed to like anyone in the film <laughs> at all and I I think it's a real fault of the film I think it's a fault of Harry Corbett's performance to be honest I don't like him or warm to him and I don't think they're going for that sitcom classic comic monster where this guy's a knob but you actually see a lot of endearing traits that mean you kind of understand where they come from and sympathize with them I guess he's just not a very nice person in a lot of ways and I guess this is a, a you know it's to do with changing attitudes and the time it was made but you know he He's looking at this this woman after getting a, a Dear John letter, and he says, I'll smash her bleeding face in when I see yeah. and you're And you're just meant to think, yeah. like, yeah, that's a reasonable uh, <laughs> thing to say and expect. Like, don't, it's not yeah. a joke. You're not meant to think, ooh. And then he goes around to a house with a, with a pipe or something to... Well, this is an interesting <laughs> thing, because for me, from the context of having seen the show... 
there's no way he would do that. It's kind of, he's just speaking in anger. You don't really believe he would do it. Although he does then go to her house with a pipe in his in his hand. But I mean, yeah. even so, that's a very aggressive, unpleasant thing to say, even if it's not something that you would yeah, but this is a w- Yeah, his wife's just left him on his honeymoon. So it's like, you know, he's a bit worked up. I, think... I know, I know, but it's 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 just weird to you would never get that aimed at the wife in this day and age. You you might get it aimed at the man that he kind of believes she's sort of run off with potentially, but yeah, it's I don't know, and and I, that's just one example that I wrote down. But there were you know multiple instances of things like that where I was like, ooh, I don't really like. Well, like I say, I think <laughs> there, there is absolutely no way he as a character would do that. Would actually follow through on that. Yeah, and like even if he rushes in with a pipe in his hand, he's then going to go, oh, what the hell am I going to do? Uh, but that is an interesting point you raise because I was thinking like if you weren't familiar with the show, how mm. how does this film play? Because there's so yeah. much sort of context that helps me through this. Part of the problem is the series by this point was several years in and they had slightly lost track of what had made it good in the first place. And part of that is that Harold, the son, just has no power anymore at all. He's completely impotent and well, totally... Well, that, that's that's part of what I hated about him. He yeah. was just this pathetic... The amount of yeah. times in this film, it's like, just fucking take charge of your life. That's obviously the setup of the conflict between the characters, but in the earlier series, he's definitely got a lot more aspiration. He's trying to do things, mm. and the father will hold him back, but in a less direct way. Whereas now, like, and by this point, it is literally he wants to get married, and Albert's like, nah, nah, you're not going to do that. And then for some reason, like, goes on the honeymoon with them, and it's never really yeah, explained. Yeah, it's never explained. Happened. How did he talk his way into that, you know? And then, mm. and it's just a, a bit of nonsense. And also, another sort of problem structurally with the film is that we have this big jump where he, you know, he comes back after the night out and he's like, oh, I fall in love. Cut to wedding day. It's wedding. like, what? Yeah, well, we... next episode. So why, how, we, we don't get any of the dad, like, you know, trying to talk him out of it or whatever, which we just get all that afterwards. But perhaps after the what, what you're asking, and I think what Sol's asking is, you know, why? How do, how does Albert end up on the honeymoon? We never really find that out. But we don't need to find that out because we know from seeing these characters for years and years that that is inevitable. Mm. And anybody mm. who was watching this film when it came out would have had that background. They would have seen every episode of this. I think I get it and I understand how it's inevitable with these characters, but it doesn't make me like that character because it makes him a victim of his own circumstances in yeah. a way where I just have no sympathy for it. It's like, I don't care how annoying and weaseling your dad is. Like, just be firm, put your foot down at a certain point, like, mm. leave him to it. And, and, and then again, you know, he gets food poisoning and he... It's like, right, go home then. You want to go home, go home. Like, Yeah, that, that whole bit doesn't quite play because we're supposed to believe he's so genuinely concerned about his dad's yeah. health that he's like, oh, well, I'm going to have to go. I'm sorry, love. I'm mm. going to you know, have to leave you here. And she, she for backs listeners who up. haven't, So yeah, for listeners who haven't seen the film, you know, he meets this woman, they get married very quickly, and then they rush off on the honeymoon. The dad comes along. And then he gets food poisoning the first day, basically, the first night. And there's only two seats on the plane because it's so last minute. So 
he and his dad have to go back and leave his wife alone. And there's a man with a moustache who's clearly got more <laughs> testosterone than, than uh, Harry. So he's scared that she's going to run off with him because she knows him and they're a bit flirty. But that's it. So she she backs him up in like, okay, he is actually ill. Yeah, go and you, you need to kind of be with your father. Well, she kind of says you have to go be... She, I mean, she kind of does, but then she's clearly really pissed off about it. She clearly would rather he stay. But the whole point is that in the series, what would happen was Albert would try and stop him, try and stop him, try and stop him. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm doing my own thing. I'm doing my own thing. And then he would have a heart attack or at least fake it well enough so that he would, oh my God, I am actually properly worried now and you've got me again. And that's the but because in the build-up to this we don't have the sincere Harold facing off against his father so this is just another moment of capitulation rather than Mm. the actual moment of capitulation where he's like oh my god I am actually worried now and so it doesn't quite play in the way that I think it's supposed to and I, I think also, just in terms of the structural problems of this, like I said, we, we don't see any of the courtship, really. We just jump straight to the wedding. I, it did feel a little bit like they'd done everything possible to cut as much of this woman out of the film as possible. <laughs> um, but when we actually see her, she seems to be a perfectly competent actor and everything. But it, it feels like, how can we... How can we may have this character of this woman, but not actually write a character for her or give her any personality or put anything into that effort whatsoever? Well, when I asked earlier, you know, is she a goodie or a baddie? And that's what I mean. There's no, we don't get any of her motivations. Why has she fallen in love with mm. this guy so quickly? You know, does she, does she want to spend her honeymoon? Of course she's pissed off his dad's there. But then she does seem to sympathise. He's not well, yeah. you need to look after him. So I, I never really know where she is and what she no, really I, is feeling. I, I, it, it feels like there's something cut from the film, frankly, that unlocks yeah. her, her character. But the whole cause... point about Steptoe and Son is that it is about Steptoe and his son. And mm. in the series, it's very much a two-hander. You know, the, the dialogue between the two, the interaction between the two is the source of all the comedy. And so th- there isn't room for someone else. You know, there's no room in, the, in, in his life for a wife, but there's no room in the comedy for a, another character either. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say this... It almost felt like a parody of Steptoe and Son. It felt like, you know, Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse doing a sketch (laughs) of Steptoe and Son because it was just so... It kind of had all the ingredients there, but no, nothing behind it and kind of no meaning to anything. And uh, and it just felt like it was taking the piss out of the cliches of the show. Did you notice as well? I mean, this just as... Just to speak of uh, what you were saying there, Gareth, about it being step to and son, they go to the wedding and there's no one there. They ha- he has no friends. No. They have no family there. There's it's, nobody in the. It's in just him and his dad as his best man. It's, yeah. it's pathetic, really. Yeah. yeah. Let's move. Let's move the plot onwards. So, so Albert and Harold come home. She stays there, as as he puts it. She's on the nest with old oily. <laughs> <laughs> so she's so she's now uh, having an affair with the guy with the mustache. And so we're back to Steptoe and Son, and, you know, here we are again. Suddenly, he receives a bundle of postcards and a letter from her, mm. which is, you know, he reads through them one oh, by it's, one. It's, 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 tra- it's tragic, but it, it, goes from, it goes from missing you to I'm leaving you, in, you know, all in within a minute. But it's the way he lines them up in order of when they were yeah. sent, and it ends with a letter. I mean, it's clear as day what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. I you guess can it's see supposed it coming. to be. Is that, is that the joke? Yes. I, I mean, don't this think is something anyone's I, watching I know... that and surprised by what Yeah. I know it's. Um, I know times have changed and styles and sensibilities have changed, but th- this film never really was very funny for me. 
was it funny for you? Uh, <laughs> I, like there were it registered as no, jokes. But interestingly, was... me and I watched this uh, last night with my wife, and at the end she wasn't very happy. At the very <laughs> end, she said, "Well, I didn't laugh once, and <laughs> I had to admit that neither had I." <laughs> yeah, it's it, and it definitely part of that is the lack of laughter. You don't get the shared laughter, and you don't sort of pull it out of you. But mm. at the same time, yeah, it's not. It's not as funny as the show, and it's not as it's not f- funny. <laughs> well, I laughed when we watched we watched episodes of this for our podcast. I, I you know I laughed several times, but mm. no, the film wasn't as funny. And you know, I must say, I for whatever reason, the rhythm of of jokes, like I can go, well, that joke works, even though it doesn't make me laugh. I don't find it particularly funny. It's it's a perfectly adequately constructed joke. I do find that very watchable. You know, it, it, I'm not saying I hated it, I guess. It, it just felt a bit tragic in some ways. One of the best aspects of the show is the dialogue. There's a lot of wordplay and and, and, mm. and just the way they speak mm. to each other. There's a real... Uh, there, there's just lots of funny lines and it's it's lacking it's that as well, well. There's the odd one or two, but it's just not... It's not got the same... Well, again, I, I just... I read that line about the lobster that I wrote that down and when... Again, I think we watched three episodes of Steptoe and Son for our, sitcom, uh, our podcast and I wrote down so many lines that, I, yeah. that really made me smile and, oh, that's a beautifully written line and I, that's the only one I wrote down from the film from, from an hour and a half. Well, I, I wrote down when they're talking about baby names... Here's a good one, Gervais. And then the other guy says, sounds like a lump of old French cheese. And I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> that's a very accurate description for, for what I think of uh, Gervais. Uh, so uh, what's the, the sort of the next part of the story is all of a sudden one day he goes into the stable, hears a noise and there's a baby being left there. Oh, at some point he goes and meets the wife and realises she's pregnant and they do a whole bit where she's yeah, yeah, yeah. going to come in. Well, then we have a scene where she goes to his or his dad's house, I suppose. And I really thought then it's like, if you're not going to go to hers, at least clean up a bit. Fucking hell. <laughs> it's a pigsty. There's just shit everywhere. Like, I know that's the point. You, you, you know, you rag and bone men. You just collect shit. That's your living. But, you know, Christ almighty, at least, like, try. Well, this is this is something I've done in the show by... About seven times by this point, you know, he brings a woman back, or he's he's finally got in with a woman, and they want to get married, but Albert f- manages to ruin it somehow. There is an episode where a woman turns up and she's pregnant, and she's like, "Oh, I think this is yours. Remember we met at that party? I got drunk. I can't remember what happened." And then, uh, and again, it transpires it's not his uh, in the end. Mm. But they get very excited about the idea of having a baby, and 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 so he's disappointed at the end. So it's it's like they've kind of done it all before. So we are replaying to some that extent. Here. Yeah. Did you did you like because he meets this woman who's you know this this beautiful stripper that's the idea and she meets him at the bar when he's getting a drink and the idea is they they hit it off and it's love at first sight or whatever it is but he's very passive he doesn't you know he's not a particularly attractive man or a particularly charming man she just for whatever reason decides she likes it. And- that's why I am assuming from the start she's she's playing him. She's trying to get something. She's not. She's yeah. not genuine. But, uh, but we never got that though, because there's nothing to get. Yeah, yeah. 
Although there is a sequence here where they're talking about they're talking about getting Albert's inheritance. They want Al- what they want mm. is money. And all the way through that, I was thinking, how much money has Albert got squirreled <laughs> away? Because it, it seemed to be a big point. Well, of, he's uh, he's got a lovely lovely big house in London, but I think back in 1972, <laughs> that was probably not worth very much at all, was it? In yeah. uh, in Steptoe and Sunride again, he has eight hundred and nineteen pounds in savings oh, uh, in quite, cash, quite just a in a egg. in a shoebox. And Harold wants to send the kid to Eton on that. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so yeah, Albert scares off the woman again. That's done. Six months later, oh, look, a baby is in the stable. So obviously the natural assumption is that it's uh, her baby that she's dropped off there. And then we have the two men and a baby sequence where they kind of learn to love again. Tell me if this uh, um, portrays some of my personal biases. But the note I wrote here was... Another life ruined by a child. <laughs> because Harold is like having to work extra jobs and like every and he's tiring himself to death. Well he doesn't to, have to, to try he, and make money for, for a child that doesn't need anything yet. He puts it on himself that he's gonna become really wealthy to give the kid like this incredible life. So he just yeah. takes it like he doesn't have to do that. I think he'd be perfectly capable of providing for it otherwise from what we see, and, but and what we we kind of get a hint of here, but never we never quite get there, which would have been a good way to go with this, is that, you know, Albert, all of a sudden, you know, he's raised a baby before and he's got a few tricks up his sleeve. He knows what he's doing and he can help yeah. Harold. They can bond over that. They we see, a, we see an interesting new side of Albert here, don't we? He's, yeah. You know, he's quite affectionate. Because that's another thing in the series. You know, Albert is ultimately the antagonist to Harold, but we, we still sympathise with him. We still understand where he's coming from. And he gets his moments of victory in the show. Whereas in the film, he's just an annoying dick the whole time. And and so we get a chance here to see that different side. And it just never quite develops enough or, or it, it, it needed... Like, this could be the whole film, couldn't it? A baby turns up one day and it's like, oh, it's that woman mm. you you were seeing six months ago. And then the whole film is, yeah, you know, raising a baby or whatever. And then they lose it. At yeah. The end. yeah, it feels like they don't know how to write for more than 28 minutes at a time. And, mm. and, and so they just don't know what to do. At, at the very end, the baby disappears. The baby is taken back by its mother. Um, and so he goes to find her, and it, obviously the, the the punchline is it's a different baby. So this baby that they've been looking after has got nothing to do with with Harold. It's some other baby. Yeah. Um, but there's a scene where he's he's trying to find Zeta, the stripper, and so he goes to another football club where she's performing, and he gets his head kicked in, doesn't he? <laughs> like, he's because someone someone manhandles her, and so he stands up to them, and yeah, it all kicks off, and he gets a proper shoeing. I like how they play it with like the rugby team or whatever that they're they're beating up, but it's not they're not like angry at him. They're just having a laugh. It's like yeah, yeah let's, let's, let's kick this guy's head in. Yay! <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, it, he finds her and she has the baby there. And just to be absolutely crystal clear, it's a different baby. They make it black, uh, just <laughs> so that we know, we know definitely. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt there. And that's it. Um, <laughs> Then we go back to them coming out of the divorce courts and they're like, oh, we had a baby for a bit. That was nice, wasn't it? Lost it. <laughs> and, back, and we reset and we can go for the next episode. Well, you know, I have to say that my, my... I know this is obviously a film podcast and not a TV podcast, but I have to say that the film was a, a massive step down from the TV series. Yeah, yeah. 
it's not a good adaptation of Steptoe and Son, even from the one episode I've seen. It, it seems like a lot of stuff isn't working properly or has been, you know, lost in translation or just isn't done as well because maybe the writers are running out of ideas or something. I don't know. But at the same time, I find it very watchable and easy to sit through. So, I mean, it, that's worth yeah. something. I don't get bored from it. So, I mean, I, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10, which I think is very generous. I remember thinking the second one, Steptoe and Sunrise Again, is like actually a passable film from what I remember. I, I liked it more than this one, but it's been so long since I watched them, I couldn't Yeah, I, I can clarify that, because I watched them both. Because I watched Steptoe and Sun for this, I thought, oh, I'll watch the other one. But yeah, I, I, just to echo your sentiments, really, on Steptoe and Sun, I gave it a 6, and I would consider that generous... I think there's some residual kind of uh, life from the sitcom for me. But yeah, it's structurally kind of very poor and there's something missing. There's just an energy missing to it. Uh, Steptoe's Unride again, the sequel, it's just a little bit better structured. It's sort of, it's still, it's still pretty much a a three-part thing. I think that was it for me. I just remember thinking, oh, that felt actually like a, film (laughs) yeah it's it's still a bit of a three-part thing because you know the first bit is about them getting a greyhound and then the the last and then the second half is about them faking albert's death and they're kind of connected but yeah it's still a bit dodgy but it's better and i think you get a few more gags because it is just the two of them for the most part. They're not trying to bring in anyone else in. and it, it just works a little... The whole thing just works a little bit better. I gave that one a seven for what it's worth. It's just slightly better. Yeah, same. It's funny what you, should, you say that, because describing the plot there, I think I might have seen that. And I think I might have seen this many years ago as well, yeah. when I was a kid, because I think they were probably both repeated on the telly. Yeah. But, so in terms of ratings, I've given it a five. But as you were talking then, I was thinking about this, this idea of it being three episodes back to back. And I kind of thought about each episode. And each one of those episodes I might give a six or a seven mm-hmm. out of ten but as a film it's only a five and that, that that's telling in terms of the structure <laughs> it's, it's it's stretched too thin it's not structured properly and that that costs that costs it marks yeah so yes the, the podcast that uh, we're, we're doing this episode to slightly advertise is the British slightly. sitcom history podcast with myself and Gareth and it's really quite an in-depth look. We pick a sitcom and we go really into quite a lot of detail in history. We look at the actors, what they did before and after. And then we'll pick one episode to sort of specifically pick apart and have a few laughs with. So go and check it out. British Sitcom History Podcast. Available in all the usual podcast places. And on Instagram and Twitter, we are at BritcomPod. BritcomPod. Uh, and yeah, and go and check out the YouTube channel, British Sitcom History, because I'm putting other stuff up there as well as the podcast. Uh, and I want some hits. Like and subscribe. <laughs>